Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part conversation with Dr. Mark Brackett, who's the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Mark has been speaking about emotional intelligence since long before it was cool to do so. He's been at it for more than 25 years. In today's episode, Mark introduces us to his book, Permission to Feel. Mark describes the impetus to write the book and also outlines its key components. It is really good to have you here. Mark, there's so many exciting things happening with your work. And of course, it's in the context of lots of really difficult things happening in the U.S. and around the world with pandemics and racial tensions. And it's such an important time to be talking about well-being. So we really appreciate your advice. And uh, I know I take it personally and professionally, and uh, I know the listeners will as well. Mark, you have a, 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 a new book that was put out last year called Permission to Feel. And it has been a huge seller. And it's really a sign. It's interesting that you wrote that book before March 2020. Mm -hmm. And it has become even more useful for people. So what was the inspiration at that time to write this book? Well, you know, it's funny because the title of the book was a little bit of a turnoff to my agent and even some of the publishers because they're like permission to feel, you know, that's a little fluffy, a little soft. And I said, I know, but like, this is the issue, right? Like your resistance to even me saying that term is problematic. And so, and then they were saying, well, you know, I don't picture the executive walking through the airport, picking that up. And I said, well, maybe not yet, but I'm not going to call the book, you know, emotional intelligence for leaders. Cause that's been written 55,000 times already. And so the deeper story is that it's multifold really, but just to cut to the personal story is as a kid, I didn't really feel like I had the permission to feel. As you know, from reading my book, I was abused as a kid by a neighbor for many years, um, which to this day still baffles me that that happened, that it went on for long periods of time without being detected by my own family, that I didn't disclose it, which also is still a wonder for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I reflect on those experiences, I realized I was threatened by this person to not share things. I grew up in a family where I knew my parents loved me, but you know, my parents had their own challenges. You know, my mom had terrible anxiety and she was like, I'm having a breakdown every other day. And I'm like, okay, I guess I can't really check in with mom because she'll have a nervous breakdown. And my father was a tough guy. So his mindset was like, so I'm toughing up. And so he wasn't really interested in talking to me about my feelings. Long story short is that I've realized now at 50, you know, having been a scientist for 25 years of my life around emotional intelligence, that really the first step to learning these skills 
is that you got to give yourself and you got to give everybody you care about the permission to feel. And that means like right now during these many pandemics, we all give ourselves and everyone the permission to feel whatever they're feeling, anxiety, anger, worry, frustration, because that's what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. And if we deny that permission, then we deny people their identities. We deny people their life experiences. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, sadly, your story about your personal abuse when you were a child, that was also a sign of that time when parents had difficulty talking about any of those kinds of things and certainly had difficulties talking about their parents. I'm in my 50s as well. And I can tell you, neither one of my parents, I know they love me. We're from a large family with six uh, children in the family. We were close. We never talked about feelings, ever. Yeah, no, it's quite shocking, actually. So I can only imagine that, you know, in your capacity of being in the area of psychology, you're able to come forward. And the creation of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, that was a game changer, not just in Yale, but really around the world, I think that signaled that things can be different. I hope so. You know, I do feel, I'm a, I'm a, I call myself a very negative, chronic optimist. <laughs> like my default is like, like my mother, like, I'm going to have a breakdown. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a minute, Mark, you're actually not going to have a breakdown. Things are going to work out. You know that. Come on, Mark. Um, and I'm lucky that I have the skills and the strategies. You know, my mom and dad didn't have those. That's right. And so... I didn't share just briefly that I was blessed with one adult in particular who happened to be my mother's brother, who happened to be a teacher, who happened to be writing a curriculum teaching kids about feelings through history back in the 1970s, who happened to be getting a master's degree in my hometown, who happened to stay over on the weekends and who happened to talk with me while I was a teenager about all my challenges. Mm-hmm. And honestly, um, I dedicate my health and my well-being to those early interactions with my uncle, who I assert, you know, gave me the permission to feel because he, as I say in my book, was an emotion scientist, not an emotion judge. He was open and curious about my experiences. He wasn't, he never judged. He was reflective. He never told me like, toughen up, get some grit, right? He said, let's talk through this together. Let's think about what you need. What can I do to support you? It was always the the we, the we, the we. Never like, good luck, kiddo. Mm -hmm. I loved your comments and the way that Uncle Marvin, I think it's Marvin, right? Yes. He's woven throughout the book. And as the reader is reading through that book, I mean, I felt like I knew Uncle Marvin by the end of it. And I loved Uncle Marvin by the end of it. And my new hashtag is like, be an Uncle Marvin. (laughs) Exactly. And actually, I was thinking of that because years ago in the education system in Ontario, and I'm sure in many jurisdictions around the world, we grasped onto this idea of a caring adult, that every child, whether they're in kindergarten or whether they're in high school, every child should be able to, within their school, have a caring adult. It may be their homeroom teacher. It may be the custodian. It may be a volunteer that comes in, but we should be able to think of the children in our care and know that they feel connected to at least one adult that they can have some of those conversations with. And I think, you know, that concept was a game changer. It really started in the very early days of thinking about well-being and the connection between 
well-being and learning that now, 30 years later, we know that the research says that those are completely interlinked. It's so weird to me that we still have to talk about like relationships matter. <laughs> it just seems bizarre to me that we don't, you're born dependent upon others to survive. And that never goes away. We're social creatures. Yeah. Our brains are expecting the stimulus, you know, from other people to, and learning occurs in relationships. But yet I think the hard part is that because of all of our own craziness, <laughs> it's hard to be in relationship because people trigger us, right? People right. don't agree with us. They don't want it. Like, I want it my way. And well, what do you mean? My way is the right way. Well, like, who says who, you know? <laughs> or it's like, this is the way I was brought up. And so eye contact means this and hugging means that and talking means this. And so we have so many biases in terms of our own kind of sheltered way of developing and that it's hard to kind of navigate the world. And then we're not taught how to deal with life's mostly downs, right? right? It's like, the truth is, I never even heard of the term emotion regulation until I was in graduate school. Right. And I had a lot of therapy. In my therapy, I talked, a, I mean, I could tell you the stories about my mother for like six months, you know? <laughs> you know That'll be the my, next podcast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but like, seriously, you know, like the dreamings and dreams that I had about my father and my mother and like the reflections of my childhood and what things meant and the symbolism. But like, that doesn't help you get through life. <laughs> no, exactly. I need, like, I need like concrete, I need strategies to deal with my angry father and my anxious mother, right? I need strategies to separate and individuate and have the courage to build my own relationships. And I think that we don't get granular enough around think, the specific things. Yeah, I think that whole movement around social emotional learning is really important. And when you look at the kind of the two spheres of that, the one is the social part. And so what are the skills that you have to develop and maintain relationships with others? But the first part of it is the emotional part. And that's your identity with yourself and how you understand yourself, how you develop the skills that help you be happy and satisfied and well as an individual so that mm -hmm. you can then have healthy relationships with others. And I can tell you, you know, in, in K-12, although we intuitively knew that that was important, it's really been in the last 10 to 15 years that we've really started learning from your sector in psychology to help us with that. And I think that's been incredibly important for K-12. I couldn't agree more. My, I've written a lot about that sector, obviously, you know, I feel very hopeful, but I also feel slightly, there's my negative chronic optimism, <laughs> here, is that we're so impulsive and reactionary to like the next best, like everybody always, what's next, Mark? What's next, Mark? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I, I haven't done thinking about what's next. I'm just trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper with what I know already. I think we're getting better at that. When I think of this look towards well-being, I was a program superintendent at the time, and we'd done great work on our stu student achievement agenda, really focusing on learning what does good pedagogy look like, et cetera. And all of a sudden, there was kind of a trickling of, well, well what would be the well-being framework? And like I said, although as educators, we talked intuitively about that and reacted intuitively about it, we didn't really set out an agenda the same way we had with the learning. And then it became really obvious that the two are parallel and that they're interconnected. 
And we've been at this for a while. I agree 100%. We don't need to be thinking of the next new thing. We need to be going deeper and having a deeper understanding of how yeah. those two spheres work together. It's multi-sectoral as well, right? We've got mental health professionals, health professionals, and education professionals that are working together to try to get that going. Completely agree. And I think, you know, the mindset, unfortunately, because social and emotional learning, it's getting better, but it's predominantly seen as an add-on still, right? It's not like reading, writing, arithmetic, social and emotional learning. Most schools don't have a program superintendent for social and emotional learning, right? <laughs> you know, they have a director of instruction or they have a superintendent of, you know, special education, but very rarely do they have someone who's really focused on aligning social emotional learning with all subject areas and making sure the vertical is clear, which is my hope for education. Because what happens is that because it's still somewhat ancillary, it gets it's like Thursdays at three or the workshop or the assembly or the lesson that happens in my argument, which has grown over the last 20 years, just because of my own failure, you know, at doing the work, you know, I'm one of those kind of people that like, this is going to work. Like, I know this stuff matters. Why, when I call these schools up a year later, they, well, we didn't have time mm -hmm. or, you know, we got sidetracked by this. I'm like, sidetracked by that, but this is the core. And so what I've learned over the years is that it's about infusing these principles into the immune system of the school. Absolutely. It's changing the culture. It is. And the truth is that these are not skills that can be taught in isolation of context mm -hmm. because I mean, my own example, you know, going back to my story for a moment, well, my parents didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence per se, they were survivors. And so while they were like lost at what to do with me, they did know to get me a therapist and mm -hmm. thank God they did that. Mm -hmm. The challenge was that I went from like a chaotic home to play ping pong with my therapist and talk about, you know, what was going on in my life. And then I went back to my home where it was chaotic. And then I went back to my school where I was being bullied all the time. I was terribly bullied for most of my school years until I was in high school. And a lot of it had to do with my sexual abuse got leaked because I was on television, which was a whole nother story that I never wrote about. And so like the public found out about it. And then people were felt weird, like stay away from Mark. He's like, a, you know, he's got bad blood. So my point is that you can't take one individual and like teach them things and think they're going to thrive in environments where no one else is learning the skills and practicing Excellent. them. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's some of the things that are happening. And, and one of the things that I love about the book, you expand on the ruler mm -hmm. work and people react differently to this idea of being able to put something in something as simple as R-U-L-E-R, -E but I can tell you that personally, I find that so helpful because, you know, when you think of the challenging jobs that teachers and principals and early childhood educators, et cetera, the challenging jobs that they have, to have a framework like that in the back of their mind where it's reminding them, okay, these are the steps that I have yeah. to help children and adolescents go through to be able to, and this is what I need to be doing as an adult first myself, and then being able to set up an environment in the classrooms where, where children are allowed to do that. I find that so helpful. So tell me a little bit about Ruler and, and tell me recently, I mean, you developed that a little while ago, and what are some of the recent successes that sure. you're hearing about? 
Well, a few things. One is that Ruler is an outgrowth of my work with my uncle. And also it is, you know, directly related to the theory of emotional intelligence that I was trained in by my mentors, who were the inventors and originators of this concept. Peter Salovey, who's the president of Yale, and Jack Mayer, who's a professor at the University of New Hampshire. But the Ruler framework, I felt it was necessary to really get discreet and clear. Mm -hmm. And that, like, I need, I always wanted the clarity, like, what do I do with my feelings? I feel them. I, and truth is, I always thought that my feelings were my destiny because I had a lot of sadness in my childhood, a lot of anger in my childhood, never learned strategies. So I just thought you get lost in your sadness and you get lost in your anger and you get lost in your anxiety. And then it's like, maybe someone will say, you know, do you want a ice cream? <laughs> you know, like, but no one was really there to say like, how are you really feeling? And what might've caused that feeling? And mm-hmm. let's talk about how you're expressing that. And what are your needs? And here's some strategies that might work for you. Let's explore them. So that's what ruler really is. And mm-hmm. I feel strongly about having frameworks because I think it helps to create meaning out of an experience. Mm-hmm. So R is recognizing emotions. Like what's going on in my body right now? You know, am I energized or am I depleted? Do I feel pleasant? Do I feel unpleasant? Do I want to approach the day or do I want to like pull the covers over my head and go disappear? And that's really the R and ruler people oftentimes misunderstand. It's really just your like kind of gut instinct. Like, is this webinar going well? Is it not going well, right? Do I feel energized? Thank you. Do I feel depleted? And then you start saying, okay, well, I feel pleasant. I got a lot of energy. All right. So why? What's going on? Well, I'm doing a fabulous webinar with Jennifer Adams. Oh, so how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling excited and hopeful and optimistic. Okay, so now I'm able to label my feelings. And that's the R, the U, and the L. Yeah. Then I have to say, okay, do I want to stay there or do I want to shift? Is that feeling of hope and excitement and optimism working for my current goal, you know, of doing this with you? Mm -hmm. Or should I feel something different? Maybe I need to like get a little calmer and stop talking or, you know, whatever it might be. Or maybe I need to energize myself to be more responsive. If I were angry, do I need to just like be with my anger for a while? Or do we need to decrease it so I can have a difficult conversation? And so that's the E and the R of ruler, which has to do with like, what is the best way to express my feelings to you? And then what is the best strategy to support me in managing those feelings or regulating them to achieve my desired outcome? What I love about the framework, Mark, is that I think it provides a sense of coherence so that we start talking a common language that when you have something that's that simple as far as five steps like that, You can get large groups of people, whether it's an entire staff in a school or something that a school district is working with, or really when we're talking about, you know, going worldwide, there's an understanding that it's, uh, this is the feeling that I'm having, this is the label that I'm going to give it, and this is the action piece, what I'm planning to do, either stay where I am as far as that emotional feeling is, or move on to a better place, and how do I get to that better place? So scalability, I mean, if we're truly going to get better at helping students develop the capacity to be healthy, happy individuals, you have to have common work that's going on across large areas. So I think it's brilliant. The other thing that I like about Ruler is the fact that there's an action piece to the end of it. 
you know, the ER mm-hmm. at the end of it is really about, do I want to stay here? If I don't want to stay here, then what are some things that I can be doing to get to a different place? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think what else is important to mention is that there's never a value judgment put on these things. And mm-hmm. that's the difference between a skill and say like character traits. Yes. And so there's no correctness. And that's hard for a lot of people, again, because of our biases. You know, like I like a particular saying that helps me calm down. So you should like it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Like it doesn't feel right for me. Mm-hmm. And it's too Buddhist or it's too Jewish or it's too whatever it is, Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I can't tell you what to say to yourself. But what I can say is that positive self-talk is really helpful. And if you can find ways to come up with statements that can help you shift out of your unpleasant place and into a pleasant place, it can be really helpful. So for example, for me, it's like, Mark, take the high road when I'm really annoyed with somebody, (laughs) when I'm anxious. And like when I used to travel a lot and I'd be like stuck because the flight got canceled because of weather, I would be so like irritated and angry and like, oh, what am I doing with my life? I can't stand ruler. I was like, why do I want to talk about ruler in this place? Why, why am I even going there? This is like ridiculous. I'm wasting my career. And I'm like, Mark, you know this feeling is impermanent. Because I've had it a million times before and I've been fine the next day. And like just reminding myself that. But again, over the last, you know, 50 years, those are the kind of things that I've found work for me. Mm-hmm. And they take practice and they got to refine it. And the question I have for most educators is how much effort have you put into making sure that every student in your school has those go-to strategies for their sadness, for their anger, to cheer themselves up, to whatever it might be. And what I find is that that's the missing link. Mm -hmm. It's like we talk a lot about emotions or we talk about empathy, but we don't really spend the time helping people to develop that empathy or to develop that skill and to practice that skill. And then get, you know, like if I ask Jennifer, like, I know that I can't, it's not working. Like I'm trying to say Mark takes the harbor, but it's not working. Like, how do you respond? You're like, well, I guess that self-talk doesn't work. Or do you say, let's talk about it. You know, did you take some breath before you did that? Did you give yourself some space? Maybe that phrase is not like a good phrase. Let's, let's come up with some new ones. Have a new one. Right. Maybe you're beyond that phrase. I don't say, I think I can. I think I can. (laughs) Right. I did that when I was in kindergarten. It's interesting when you talk about helping students develop those strategies. And I think what we've learned with social emotional learning, and and I know in the school district that I was working in, we jumped on the idea of well-being and well-being and learning connectedness together. We talked about what are the characteristics and skills that we'd like to have all of our mm-hmm. students uh, leaving the school district. And we branded something called exit outcomes. And they were the five characteristics and skills that the community had come together to say, these are the things that we think are most important for mm-hmm. our kids to be happy and healthy and productive in work and in school and in their home lives in the community. So it was a great process. What we realized when we started rolling this out with our teachers and our principals is that our educators were saying, but we're not sure if we have those characteristics and skills. So it was that concept that, you know, we can't be expecting educators to be helping students develop skills in emotional intelligence unless we're actually 
helping the educators and providing spaces for them to be developing those skills. Because it's not a either you have them or you don't have them. It's a constant process throughout life where you're developing those skills. So how do we create cultures within our schools, within our workplaces that really acknowledge those feelings that emotional intelligence and social emotional learning is important? And how do we help the adults? I know you're doing lots of work in that area. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, you bring up, you know, basically that's what we learned, you know, a good decade ago or 15 years ago, running around the world. And then we just fail. I would get things like my job is not talk to students about my feelings. I never forget that day. I was in London, actually, doing a talk and the teacher just walked out of the room, you know, and I remember there was another teacher there and he said, you know, can I say something? I'm like, sure. And he says, you know, I was actually a student in this school before I became a teacher and she was my teacher. <laughs> it was really quite funny. Um, for a session. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's an extreme example, but it's indicative of a general mindset that feelings should be like left at the door or it's not my job as a teacher to teach kids about feelings. And also that you may get it wrong when you're working with a child and that you have to apologize and forgive and, you know, and repair. And so very early on in my career, I learned we got to work with the adults first. They've got to be the role models. And they also, what I learned was till this day, you know, most educators don't have a nuanced emotion vocabulary. If I ask most teachers, what's the psychological difference between anger and disappointment? 99% can't give it to me. Mm -hmm. If I say, what's the difference between stress, anxiety, fear, define them? And why, why does it matter to be able to differentiate those experiences? People can't do it. So if the adults who are raising and teaching kids don't have that granularity, then how the heck are they going to really help kids? And it really matters because that specificity is really a guide to the action plan. You know, by way of example, I was a kid who was, you know, I had behavioral problems. I was, I got C's and D's in behavior. I was being bullied. Like, I don't really care about learning. Can someone just like care about me, please? And like be in relationship with me. So I would yell, I would scream, I would throw things. I don't even know. I mean, I still think if anybody did like, a videotaped analysis of my childhood and said like, hey, this guy's going to be a professor of teaching. <laughs> it just makes no sense. If you think about longitudinally, you know, what research says happens, which I have problems with, because I think it's too much about destiny and not enough about process. And I would get punished. I would get suspended from school for misbehaving. No one ever knew that I was feeling shame about being bullied in the locker room where I had self-esteem issues or that I was feeling like, betrayed by friends who would like tattle and do weird stuff. No one ever knew any of that about me. So how are you supposed to support me? It's not possible. Right. One of the tools that you have, Mark, that I've used with introductory activities when talking about social emotional learning is the, the grid that you have, where the emotion grid, the four quadrants. You got to get the mood meter. Come on. Exactly. And that is so helpful for a number of things. Obviously, it's a great way to start the conversation on social emotional learning. But more importantly, I think that concept of we're so used to trying to get to when we're thinking of skills, like you, you said, the difference between skill development and character traits, you're thinking intuitively that you're trying to get to the high level of skills. And what those quadrants 
show. And the way that you talk about it is that all of those are normal feelings and that you should Mm -hmm. feel completely comfortable talking about the fact that you're in this particular quadrant right now. And it goes back to that ruler uh, framework, which is recognizing it, identifying it, being understanding that that's where you are, and then labeling and then being able to say, okay, do I need to stay here for a while? Or are there some things that I can do to get to another place? Yeah. And I think that that's something, that's something that we've really learned from our mental health professionals that are working in school districts with us now is helping us to have names for things like that, that we didn't have names for before. Yeah. I'm obviously, you know, a big fan of the mood meter only because it's not only attractive as a tool, but it's scientifically based. And so like we as humans appraise our environment for things that are we want to approach or avoid for our own survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. And then we also evaluate like, do I feel like I can thrive? Or do I feel like I'm depleted? Mm-hmm. And that helps us make choices in life. Mm-hmm. So the mood meter is our tool to help understand emotion space. What I also like about it is that it takes the complexities that we all have inside our brains and bodies. And it just at first says like, Am I yellow, red, blue, or green? Like, just let's just go to the basics. Where might I be right now? And then like, what's going on in my thought processes that made me think I should be in the, I'm in the yellow or green. So what's the word that describes that experience? And then like, is that going to be helpful for the read aloud I'm doing as a teacher? Is it going to be helpful for inspiring my students to do a cooperative learning exercise or a project-based learning exercise? Or are we doing a reflective poem where I really want my students to be like, sitting down and like just kind of in that bluish place being reflective and deep or do i want them to be like energized and like we're fighting this injustice and we're going to write a letter to the government to talk to them about like what we need to change and so that's what this work how it fits into education because emotions are the drivers of attention and learning and decision making and so as educators if we're clever with understanding how we're feeling how our students are feeling and how we want people to feel then we draw we get a roadmap to how to get there. In my research, what we show is that helps create more engaging learning environments. Absolutely. They're more curious because think about it. If you're someone who is like me, like I would prefer to do all my teaching in a coffee shop, (laughs) sitting with people like small groups or on the big stage. But I don't want, if I'm on the big stage, I don't want to interact with anybody. I just want to be like, blah, 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 blah. And like, have a great day. And so Let's say I'm someone who's like the big stage person, outgoing, extroverted, like lots of energy, but there's a downside to that, right? Like I don't give people space to ask questions. Well, right? you're not that person all the time either. You're there, no. that's yeah. who you are for an hour, right? Yes. Yeah. But there are people who are like that a lot, right? They're, right. Like they, they tend to be more that like high energy, pleasant, which is a good thing. But you just always have to look for like what might not be happening in my classroom as a result of that, right? It might be that I'm more attracted to the outgoing kids in my classroom, or it might be that I don't really allow time for reflection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're like Mark, the other side, you know, of the coin, who is a little bit cynical, a little down, you know, a little maybe greenish, bluish on the mood meter, you know, you might have really rich conversations, but like you can't stay there for too long. (laughs) It's like, come on. Or it's, it's tough on you and tough on everyone else. Exactly. 
Yeah. So that's emotional intelligence. It's using your emotions wisely to achieve not only your own goals, but the goals that you have for your team as a leader or for your students in your classroom. I think what I like about that mood meter as well is that it values, it names and values such a broad range of emotions that there's not just good emotions and bad emotions, that all of them are real, can be valued, and can be important in different contexts at different times in your life and different times in your day, that that you're not made up of one emotion. That's what makes us human. It's the complexity of the human brain that we have the ability to have all those emotions. And just acknowledging that, I think, is a huge relief to students and to educators. And remember that, like right now, you know, as we're going through these very challenging times, you can simultaneously hold the pleasant and the unpleasant. And I think people have a hard time with that. In my research recently with thousands of educators, I asked them, how are you feeling? How do you anticipate you're going to be feeling during the school year? Anxious, 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 anxious. 100%. Everybody's saying that. Right. But then I also asked them, well, how do you want to feel? Like, what do you hope you can also experience? Mm -hmm. Excitement, confidence, safe, supported. There's a lot of excitement about going back to work and being with your students. And so what I want to maybe end with, just because of time here, is that we have to acknowledge that we're experiencing really difficult times and learn strategies on how to both live with those feelings of uncertainty and unpredictability. We'll do better if we do that with people because as one of my colleagues says, don't ever worry alone. Good point. Mark, there's one final thing that I want you to just give a quick shout out to. I was following you on Twitter and you were talking about this incredible project that you're doing in Connecticut. Yes. You have developed modules and tell us just quickly about that because this is the thing that I want to end with is what can senior leaders do in school systems to try to make this a culture in their schools and across their jurisdiction? Yeah. So give us a little, a, a quick sure. of what that is. So this project came out of a, all about building relationships. In truth, it was a conversation I had with a philanthropist a couple of years ago who asked me, what is your vision? And I was caught off guard. I was like, I want to make Connecticut the first emotionally intelligent state. And then she reached out to me again. She's like, I want to help you do that. I was like, yes. And so we started small building relationships with all the stakeholders, the governor of the state, the commissioner of education, the head of the superintendents association of our state, the head of all the teachers unions, the principals unions, the paraprofessionals unions. I mean, we were really lucky. And honestly, everyone is on the bus. Like everybody is rooting for this to be successful in the state of Connecticut. And so we've been slowly rolling out Ruler, our more systemic model for years. We run about 250 of Connecticut's public schools and some of the private schools as well. And then COVID hit and all the rest of, from structural racism becoming much more salient in our minds to financial crises and the list goes on. And so briefly, I said, well, what are we going to do about this? And I said, we can't expect people to like do the whole systemic thing right now. That's just a lot to ask when you're like activated. How about we build a 10 hour course and we make it available for free for every single educator in the state of Connecticut, leader, teacher, power professional, counselor, math teacher, science teacher, cafeteria worker, custodian, everybody. And so everybody agreed that that was a great idea and we built it 
It's coming out in two weeks. And so far, I think we have 17,500 people registered. And so we're just like so excited. And, you know, it's not everything, but we really just want everyone to have a common language yes. around stress, around feelings, and around healthy emotion management. And if we can get there through this mini course, I feel really great about it. Mark, that is such an amazing way to end this. So we will circle back and we'll do the, the follow-up, the sequel. I look forward to it. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to Mark for sharing his book with us. It's such a pleasure to hear directly from an author about his motivation for writing the book, as well as about the key concepts explored within. Mark has reminded all of us that there are strategies we can use to help us stay centered in this tipsy world. In episode two, Dr. Mark Brackett will shift from a focus on his book, Permission to Feel, to how educators can use the strategies outlined in the book, both in their classrooms and in their schools. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.